Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 12, and we're continuing our study through this Gospel, the Gospel of John, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 43. There in your bulletin you'll find a, a little outline of our sermon today. The title of the sermon is The Cause of Unbelief. The Cause of Unbelief, John chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 37 through 43. Here's what we read. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we pray that you would give us depth of insight and understanding into your word as we tackle a little bit of a difficult passage today. We want to see Christ and all of his glory and we want to understand what's going on here so that we might be those who would believe. And those who would walk in the truth and in the light of Scripture. Thank you for opening our eyes this morning so that we could see Christ in all of his glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by telling you the true story of a duke named Reynald III who ruled in Belgium during the 14th century. Reynald had lived a life of indulgence and was extremely overweight. He was commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. After a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynald, but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around him in the Newark castle and promised him that he could regain his freedom as soon as he was able to leave the room. This wouldn't have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a normal sized door, none of which were locked or barred. The problem was Reynolds' size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his brother's weakness and day after day, he sent him a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dieting his way to freedom, Reynald grew fatter and fatter. He stayed in the room for 10 years until his brother died in battle. He was released, but by then he had ruined his health and he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. This sad but true story reminds us all this morning that we are sinners facing different temptations in this world. Maybe you are not a big eater. Maybe you are controlled by some other desire. It could be the love of money. It could be the desire for others to like you. It could be the lust of the flesh. It could be the fear of man. It could be that you struggle with lying or cheating or stealing. 
You could have an anger problem. Maybe you're just selfish and self-absorbed. Maybe you're struggling with looking at pornography. Maybe you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And maybe you're robbing God by not giving him your offering. Maybe you're living a life of discontentment. The good news that I have for you today is that in Christ, if you are a believer, then you have power to overcome every sin. You are an overcomer through Jesus. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And through Christ, you have the ability to break any nasty sin habit. And because of Jesus, you have the ability to resist every temptation. And as a born-again believer, you've been given victory over the flesh, the world, and the devil. The same cannot be said of an unbeliever. If you don't know Christ this morning, then you have no power over your sin. You are dominated by your depravity. And if you are an unbeliever today, you are enslaved to the things of this world. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is the cause of unbelief? And the reason I shared this story about Reynald and his brother Edward is to illustrate Reynald's sinful nature. Because he was enslaved to the sin of gluttony, he was doomed for life. Reynald had the opportunity to escape from the room in the castle, but he would not. He would not resist the delicious food around him, which made him fatter, so that he could not leave the room and regain his freedom. Did you get that? He would not, and so eventually he could not. And this is what we will see today, which is at the heart of unbelief. An unbeliever will not choose Christ when given the opportunity, and so eventually he may be hardened to the point of where he cannot believe because of God's judgment. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on John, says it this way about the unbelieving Jews that we're reading about in our passage today. He said, they would not believe. In consequence, God gave them up. Now they could not believe. The harvest was past. The summer has ended, and they were not saved. But the fault was entirely theirs. And now they must suffer the just consequences of their wickedness. Well, today, as we look at the cause of unbelief, I want to look at four causes as we examine these headings together this morning. So four headings as we examine the cause of unbelief. Are you ready? Number one, unbelief is not caused by a lack of miracles. It is not caused by a lack of miracles. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, just to kind of set the table and bring you into the context here of John 12, where we are, in verse 32, if you'll back up a couple of verses, we saw where Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in this verse, Jesus is saying that he will draw or drag all people to himself. You remember from last week that the word draw does not mean to woo or to attract but it means rather to move from one location to another. The power is not in the one that is being drawn, but it is in the one who is doing the drawing. And Jesus will not drag anyone against their will, but he will give believers a new will 
and he will draw all kinds of people to himself. He will draw Jews and Gentiles. He will draw slaves and free men. He will draw men and women. He will draw the rich and the poor. He will draw the person that is raised in a Christian home or maybe even the person that was raised in a non-Christian home. God will and he can save anyone he chooses by revealing the gospel to the sinner through the word of God. And Jesus says in verses 35 and 36 that it is time to act now while we have the light, right? He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And so the Bible is saying that today is the day of salvation. There is nothing noble about waiting to come to Christ. There is no wisdom in putting this off. There is no reason to forfeit your reward. And so at this point, Jesus departed to hide for, uh, the, for a, a day or two. So we're in the, the final part of the Passion Week. And his disciples uh, will be with him. Well, he'll go to the upper room and we'll spend a lot of time in examining that. And then he'll come back into public view uh, with his trial, which is just a couple of days away. And then we read here in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And we're asking the question this morning, why? Why didn't they believe? If he had revealed himself to them in such amazing ways, why was it that they did not believe in him? And the Gospel of John describes how Jesus did seven major signs that, that uh, Jesus was doing that were all pointing to the fact that he is the Son of God and that he came to save his people from their sin. Do you remember these seven signs? Just a quick review this morning. The first one, your next blank there, if you are taking notes, is Jesus was turning the water into wine. Remember he, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana? This was to show that Jesus is capable of taking the old things of this life and making them completely new. That Jesus had the ability to transform water into wine and to transform a dead heart into an alive heart. The second sign Jesus did was the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. This sign was to show that Jesus did not need to be physically present to perform a miracle, but he could just speak the word and bring about healing. And God is omnipresent, and Jesus is able to do things in your heart and in your life, wherever you are, and no matter how sick you are. The third sign that the Gospel of John shows us is the healing of the paralytic by the pool at Bethesda. And this man was so close to being healed, but he could not get up and get into the pool when it was stirred. And this man had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him, he simply asked the man, do you want to be healed? And Jesus told him to get up and to take up his bed and to walk. And at once, this man was healed. Jesus has the power over every disease. The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000. That one you'll need to fill in your blank there. The feeding of the 5,000. This was to show us that the size of your need does not matter to God. No matter how big your need is or how many people need to be fed, Jesus can and he does take care of it. Jesus provides a more important need than bread, however. He is the bread of heaven who can feed your soul for all eternity. And then the fifth sign was the walking on the water. 
Jesus can defy nature because he is the agent of creation. Jesus is able to walk on the water and to calm the sea. Who, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This is Jesus, the Son of God. The sixth sign was the healing of the man born blind. Jesus said that he, had, that he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, Jesus fulfilled a messianic prophecy that only the Messiah could open the eyes of a blind man who was born that way. This all pointed again to the fact that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And in the seventh and final sign recorded here in the Gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead when he came out of the tomb, right? And this miracle shows that nothing is impossible with God. E even if a man had been dead and in the tomb for four days, Jesus can raise that man up just by calling him out with the sound of his voice. And if Jesus can raise a dead man physically, who's been in the grave for four days, and certainly he can raise a dead man or woman spiritually if you've been dead your whole life. He can just speak the word into your heart and by granting you faith and the ability to believe, you could be born again. And even though all seven of these signs are to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is the son of man, that he is the son of God, there were still those who did not believe. And we're asking the question, why? Why is it that they still don't believe? And the answer is, because signs and wonders don't save anyone, but repentance and faith do. Just because you see a miracle doesn't mean that you're going to be born again. Salvation requires the sovereign, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said that it was an evil and adulterous generation that would seek for a sign. And so we're not supposed to be seeking signs or miracles or having our bellies filled. We are to be seeking the glory of God on the cross. And if you're waiting for God to do a miracle in your life in order for you to come to him, then you will never come because Jesus doesn't come to those who are demanding a certain sign. He comes to the penitent. He comes to the person who's convicted over their sin. He reveals himself to those that he calls out of darkness into light, and that's called faith. It was in John 20, 29, that he talked to doubting Thomas, and he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen and have, who have not seen and yet have believed. So in other words, he never really applauds the fact that you believe just because of the miracles. He's applauding the faith of the person who is believing who's never seen. And unbelief has nothing to do with the amount of signs that a person has seen or the lack thereof. Jesus did plenty of signs in the New Testament, and yet unbelief was rampant in the first century. Now, unbelief is not caused by a lack of evidence. If there was a legitimate miracle worker today, unbelief would still exist because saving faith is not based on seeing a miracle with your own eyes. And if you want to be saved, you must look to Christ with eyes of faith. Salvation comes through believing that God is holy and that you are a sinner and that Christ came to pay that sin debt for you and me, and that by his death and his resurrection and the fact that he, was, that he was raised from the dead, that we could be born again. And so I would tell you this morning, stop looking for accessories. 
Stop looking for a miracle. Stop looking for some work like that to save you. The work that saves you is the cross. The work that saves you is the resurrection of our Lord. And so I would say stop searching for answers in the wrong places and find your questions answered in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to our second heading this morning. Number two, unbelief is a fulfillment of scripture. Unbelief is a fulfillment of scripture. Look at verse 38 with me, if you will. It says, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so we see your next blank here says, the unbelief and rejection of Jesus was prophesied by Isaiah. This unbelief, this rejection was prophesied by Isaiah. Verse 38, 38 starts off with what we call a henna clause in the original language, which means that it's giving us the so that. It's giving us the reason. So he's explaining to us there's a reason why so many of these Jews still don't believe. And the reason is, verse 38, so that the word of the prophet of Isaiah may be fulfilled. This verse is explaining at least one reason why they still did not believe in Jesus. It's so that this word of Isaiah, this prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled. In other words, unbelief is a fulfillment of scripture. If every person believed, then Isaiah's prophecy would not be true and the Bible could not be trusted. And in Isaiah, his prophecy that's being referred to here is Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And in the context of Isaiah 53, the expected answer is very few. Very few would believe. Many would reject. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah announced judgment upon the immoral nations, and he announced judgment upon the whole world. And yes, Isaiah even announced judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And surely there is a cause to groan under God's chastening hand. But then Isaiah points to the hope of Israel being in the suffering servant. And the suffering servant is Jesus, who would bring consolation to Israel through redemption and showing the way of salvation through the coming Messiah. And so in the context of John 12, 38, quoting Isaiah 53, 1, it's saying that there are very few who will actually believe in what they are hearing. There are not many who will experience the true power of God in salvation. Isaiah's prophecy from 700 years earlier is being fulfilled by this generation of Jews that will put Jesus to death. And Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. Jesus was a shining light in the bread of heaven, but the majority of the Jewish nation would not have him. They had heard his message, they had seen his miracles, and yet they would not believe. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We also read in Luke 13, 23 and 24, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, 
strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. And so what we're seeing here is that unbelief is a fulfillment of Scripture, which means this, look at your next blank there, the unbelief and the rejection of Jesus was not outside of God's plan. The unbelief and rejection of Jesus was not outside of God's plan. You may be asking, well, what do you mean that unbelief is within God's plan? I mean, how could unbelief be part of God's plan? Well, in God's infinite wisdom and in his sovereign grace, he brought good out of this unbelief and out of this rejection. It was through the unbelief and the rejection of the Jews that they insisted that Christ be crucified. It was through their selfish, sinful acts that God showed his love and his grace to those who would believe. Without the hard hearts of the Jews, there would be no cross. If there was no cross, then there would be no redemption. If there was no redemption, then you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. You see how this works? God had this planned all along. I mean, turn with me, if you will, open up to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and you'll see a little bit more about what I'm talking about. The unbelief is ordained by God because the cross is ordained by God. And according to Acts 2, 23, we read, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we see that God ordains the cross in order for the cross to happen. Lawless men or sinners filled with unbelief would have to nail Jesus to the cross. And yet we still see that it's all part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Turn to to Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Paul says it this way in Romans 11, 11, talking about the unbelieving Jews. In Romans 11, 11, again, Paul says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So he's saying that the stumbling or the unbelief of the Jews was not in vain. It wasn't unplanned. It wasn't a part of God's perfect design. He's saying that in the fact that they fell, that was where the trespasses that they committed by nailing Jesus to a cross is now bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Skip down to verse 15. You're there in Romans 11. Look at verse 15. Their rejection, that's the unbelieving Jews, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. And then a concluding thought down in verses 19 through 20. Then you say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. And so what we're reading here in this Romans 11 chapter is that the unbelief of the Jews is a fulfillment of Scripture. The unbelief of the Jews was a part of God's plan. The unbelief of the Jews made it possible for salvation to come to the Gentiles. The unbelief of the Jews made it possible for you and for I to be grafted in. I think it would be accurate to say that if there was no unbelief, in the Jewish nation, then you and I would not be believers. I mean, because of their unbelief is precisely the reason the Bible says that you and I are believers. And so that ought to be something that doesn't make us proud, he warns in chapter 11 of of Romans. Do not not, uh, be proud about this, but, but be humbled by this truth. 
Don't take your salvation for granted, but fear the Lord. With hearts of gratitude, fear the Lord. With a heart of worship, fear the Lord. With a heart of service, fear the Lord. For his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. And so we've seen that unbelief is not due to a lack of miracles. We have seen that unbelief is a fulfillment of Scripture and a part of God's plan. And now we see in our third heading here this morning that unbelief is an act of judicial blindness. Unbelief is an act of judicial blindness. Look at verses 39 through 41. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Your next couple of blanks there, just number A, says they did not believe in Jesus, therefore they could not believe. They did not believe in Jesus, therefore they could not believe. What we're looking at here is an act of judgment. The Jews did not believe in Jesus, verse 37, therefore they cannot believe in Jesus, here in verse 39. They would not, so they cannot, is an important progression because it reminds us that Israel still is responsible for their own rejection. Israel was not forced to reject their Messiah. There was a true offer of salvation to the nation. But Israel, in their own depravity, chose darkness over light. They chose the law over grace. They chose man-made power over the humble confession of their sin. And just like Reynald in our opening illustration, who would not choose to come out of the room built around him, he would not, and then he could not. And what we see here in Scripture, time and time again, is those who will not, eventually cannot. Turn back to Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, and let's look again at the life of Esau. We looked at this last week, but I just want to show you a couple examples of those who would not, and then they could not. The first is Esau. Hebrews chapter 12, 16 and 17 says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single mill. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, there's a prime example of somebody who would not repent, and then he could not repent. He would not and then he could not. And William Hendrickson, well-known commentator, says on this, quote, when people of their own accord and after repeated threats and promises reject him and spurn his messages, then and not until then, he hardens them in order that those who were not willing to repent may not be able to repent. And so that example of of Esau serves as a warning to all of us that if you will not, it could get to the point of where you cannot. Another example certainly would be, uh, would be Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, before God sent Moses back to Egypt, he had that burning bush experience in the desert, and here's where God told Moses that Pharaoh would not let Israel go unless he was compelled by God's mighty hand. And so before Moses came back 
to Egypt to have this conversation with Pharaoh. God had already told him what will happen in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. And so we're seeing this familiar language here. He will not, and so eventually he cannot. Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart with a judicial hardening. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So first, God knows that that Pharaoh will not let them go. And then secondly, God has determined that he will harden his heart because Pharaoh will not let the people go. Again, this is a judgment upon Pharaoh's unwillingness to do the right thing. It is only after God hardened Pharaoh's heart that the Bible says that Pharaoh then hardened his own heart in outward defiance. Uh, Look at Exodus chapter 8. And you can read that there, how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. So Pharaoh would not obey God, and therefore he could not obey God. A New Testament example, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We see the same warning here in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so then we read about how God turned them over to their flesh. And so what does Romans 121 say? They did not honor him. And since they did not honor him, then their hearts would be darkened. These unbelievers would not honor and obey God. And so God gave them over to their own lust and, to, and, and their own hearts were hardened. Uh, they would not, therefore they could not. And the more men reject the gospel, the harder it becomes for them to receive it. That's just kind of a, a principle of thought, that the more you reject and reject and reject, it becomes harder and harder to receive. Now, obviously, God in his sovereignty has to open your heart so that you can see, but we're just saying there's a tendency here that the more men reject the gospel, the harder it becomes for them to receive it. And when men close their eyes to the light, God makes it more difficult for them to see the light, and now they are stuck in judicial blindness. Leon Morris, another well-known commentator, says this, quote, when John quotes that he hath blinded their eyes, he does not mean that blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. D.A. Carson adds, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of that arbitrary potentate, cursing, morally neutral, or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they themselves have chosen. So in other words, God is not taking somebody's will and bending it for evil. God is rather allowing them to reject him 
and then he condemns them for their own rejection. And this really moves us to our next blank as we continue to unfold this and explain it a little further. The judicial blindness is rendered for refusing God's son. The reason they go through this hardness of heart and the blindness of eyes is they've already rejected God's son. Look at verse 40. Again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Sometimes if you just read verse 40 out of context, you would be like, oh man, this seems like God's being really mean. He's just like blinding people and he's, he's hardening their hearts for no good reason. And it's like, no, 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 no. Israel's been rejecting Jesus all along. They've rejected every miracle. They've rejected every sermon. They've rejected every claim that Jesus is Christ. And because they've rejected and rejected and rejected, then God says, there you have it. If you're going to reject me time and time again, then I'm rendering a judicial blindness and hardening on your own soul. This is a judicial blindness because of their constant rejection and refusal of God's Son. Uh, the Jews had fully rejected Jesus in every way. They did, not, they did not see him as the Messiah. They did not see him as the anointed one. They did not see him as greater than Moses. They did not see him as greater than the Sabbath. They did not see Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, or as the Lord of all. And because they had rejected Jesus, verse 40 says, he blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And so John is quoting this from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say about this, about the blinding of their eyes and the hardening of their heart. I want to say this. First of all, if they really did repent and turn to Christ, then he would save them. But they're not. They've already made it clear that they're not going to turn. And so they're not going to do this. And so this is, even though they've been given ample opportunity through all the teaching of Christ, all of the miracles that Christ did, they would not. And so now they cannot. Now, another thing to emphasize here is that in this context, they are refusing Jesus Christ in the flesh as he stood right there before their eyes. This wasn't like some abstract, difficult to understand, vague uh, uh, reference to the Old Testament, right? This is the word becoming flesh right before their eyes. This is Jesus doing sign after sign, miracle after miracle, teaching the Bible accurately in their presence, and they still rejected him. They refused to accept Jesus. They renounced his teaching. And not only did they reject him, they despised him, and they wanted to kill him. And so at this point, there is a judicial blindness and a judicial hardening because of their sin. No one is innocent. No one is without sin. This judgment was fully deserved. This judgment was just. This is what God does with the unbeliever who will not repent. And if they will not repent, then they will be judged. And this is why Jesus tells us that he spoke in parables. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll see the same language here again. You remember maybe the disciples came, and they asked Jesus, why is it that he spoke in these parables, these spiritual stories that might be kind of hard to understand? And so Jesus, after he talked about the parable of the sower, comes into this place of Matthew 13, 11 through 16, where he answers the question, why it is that he spoke in parables. He said this, to you, that would be to the believing disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. 
For to the one who has, more will be given. So if you have spiritual light and understanding, you'll get more spiritual light and understanding. And he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, the unbeliever who doesn't have light, and he doesn't have understanding, if he doesn't have it, then even what he does have will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Because, uh, excuse me, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now again, Jesus makes it abundantly clear, especially at the end of Matthew 13, 15. He says, if they turned, I would heal them. But they haven't turned. They won't turn. And because they haven't turned and they won't turn, this is now fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy lowering the boom in a sense of this final judgment upon their dead hearts. And a big part of this is because if instead of fully understanding uh, wh wh what's going on here, they continue to reject and to reject and to reject. And so when we read a text like this, we've got to read it all in its context. Again, because if you read it just out of context, it just seems like God is being capricious or harsh. And he's not. He's simply judging them for the choice that they made. And so we need to fully understand that, that while this may be difficult for us to grasp at times, what we should really be doing is thanking God for opening our eyes. What this should really do is like, God, why would you open my eyes? I'm just as deserving. I'm just as sinful. I'm just as depraved. And yet God has opened my heart. He's given me a, a, eyes to see what I couldn't see and ears to hear what I couldn't hear. I had a heart of stone and he turned it into a heart of flesh. And it's all by his grace. And so instead of feeling uncomfortable that God would blind eyes and harden the hearts of those who have rejected him, we should be humbled and we should be prostrate before God with our hearts and broken before God with an attitude of I'm so undeserving and I'm so unworthy and let God be God. And you focus on being grateful. You focus on being thankful. You focus on being obedient. You don't have a seat at the table of the divine counsel of God. You and I are to read what God's word says, and we are to ask for the Holy Spirit to be our ultimate teacher, and we are to accept God's truth in just the way he gave it, and we are to be amazed and in awe of the infinite wisdom of God. And we are to acknowledge that God, according to his own choice, will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. Now, one last point here under this third heading is this. They should have seen Jesus as the king, the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So as we continue to learn a little bit more about the Isaiah prophecy of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, he then backs up and refers to kind of what's going on in the whole chapter of Isaiah. If I, so if I turn there with me, if you will, Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll see what it is that he's talking about. He's saying, look, I'm, this is a fulfillment of the Isaiah 6:10 prophecy, but don't forget what happened in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. 
in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, when you just read that in Isaiah, you start to get an idea like, well, maybe he's saying God. We understand God is not body. He's only a spirit. There is anthropomorphism or language used to describe God as if he's a person, though he's not a person. And yet when we read here in John chapter 12, we realize according to verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that would be Christ's glory, and he spoke of him, that would be of Christ. And so what we're learning from this Isaiah passage is, first of all, if we've ever really even seen God, you would respond in a similar way Isaiah did. You, you would be blown away. You would see the infinite holiness of God dwelling in inapproachable light. And we would see the glory of the Lord filling the earth. And we, at the same time, would also recognize our own sinfulness, that I am undone, that woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and that we would repent of our uncleanliness. And in the context, again, of John 12, though, it says that this passage is talking about Jesus. And in fact, John attributes the Isaiah 6 passage to Jesus. This is profound. And this is saying that Jesus is God. This is saying that Jesus is divine. This is saying that Jesus is on par with Yahweh. This is saying that Jesus is the king. This is saying that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. This is saying that Jesus is holy, 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 that Jesus is sitting on his throne. And when Isaiah had the vision of Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the glory of Christ and he spoke of him. And so let me encourage you this morning to, to look to Christ. Let me encourage you this morning as what we're saying here is in the midst of unbelief and in the midst of blinded eyes, what we should be doing is looking to Christ and seeing the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ, which means if you're feeling down this morning, look up. Look up, O church, and see the glory of Christ. Why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. Know that in Christ you are a friend of God. Are you discouraged today? Let Jesus be your portion. May he be your joy. Have you been having difficulty in your week? Do you have difficulty in your marriage? Well, let Christ be your wonderful counselor. Let him show you the way. Are you struggling with patience with your children? Let Jesus show you the balance of truth and grace. Are you fearful this morning? Look to Christ, who is the Lord of hosts. Have you been persecuted this week? Rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Is money tight right now? The Bible says the righteous will not be forsaken, nor will their children ever beg for bread. Are you struggling with contentment? Then realize that the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't let your heart grow cold. 
come in and sit next to the fire, which is a flame with the heat of Christ's love for you. But praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so what we're seeing is that in this passage, there's unbelief, but there's also this unbelievable vision of Isaiah seeing Christ high and exalted, and we need to see Christ in that way this morning. And so we've seen that unbelief is not caused by a lack of miracles. We've seen that unbelief is a part of God's plan. We've seen that unbelief is an act of judicial blindness. And now I want you to see, lastly, our fourth heading this morning, that unbelief is the same thing as superficial religion. It's the same thing as superficial religion. Two questions we'll ask here. The first is, your next blank, who do you fear? Who do you fear? Verse 42 Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Who do you fear? Now, there's quite a divide in the commentaries, as I was studying this week, on understanding verses 42 through 43. And the debate is, are these authorities believers or not? Are we to understand that many of the authorities truly believed in Jesus, but out of fear, they did not confess their faith? Are we to understand that these who believed loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Well, some of the commentaries, many would say that these authorities were indeed like the believers of Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night or Joseph of Arimathea who had not consented to the decision and action of the Pharisees, but he doesn't really show up until after the death of Christ. And so while it is clear that Nicodemus came to Christ and Joseph of Arimathea came to Christ, I believe that it is doubtful to understand that these authorities referred to in verses 42 and 43 were true believers. And here's why. Verse 42 says, they believed in him, but they believed in him, but and true saving faith has no buts. True saving faith does not carry out, well, I believe in Christ, but I'm not willing to confess him in front of others. Well, I believe in Christ, but I'm concerned about my position in the synagogue, and I don't want to put that into jeopardy. The, the definition of being a Christian means that you don't carry significant fear or doubt. The, the, the idea here is that these authorities had greater fear, they had a greater fear of the Pharisees than they did of God. And it is true that they would have been ostracized. It is true that they would have been persecuted. It is true that they would have been kicked out of the synagogue. But my question is, why would you want to remain in the synagogue anyway? If the synagogue doesn't teach that Jesus is the Messiah, why would you care whether or not you're part of a community of unbelievers that are going to persecute and kill the Lord? Remember, this happened to the parents of the man born blind as they were asked about the healing of their son. They answered the Pharisees, well, ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And then the scripture says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. Well, remember, Jesus says earlier in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so we learn here that if you will not acknowledge Jesus before men, then he will not acknowledge you 
before the Father. Romans 10.9 says it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And sometimes you say, well, we don't have to say a sinner's prayer to be saved. You can just believe. I would say I agree with that. But Romans 10.9 does say you've got to confess with your mouth. Confessing with your mouth has a public aspect to it. There are no secret Christians. There are, are no, I, I am a Christian, but I don't want to tell anybody. And no, th- this, those who stand with Christ will die with Christ. And those who denounce Christ will be denounced by him. But if you stand with Christ and you confess Christ and you're bold about Christ, then you will be resurrected with Christ and you will receive a crown of glory. And this is why I think it's reasonable to conclude that these authorities didn't really believe. There may have been some mental assent, but there was no true heart change and commitment to our Lord. And so let me ask you this morning, who do you fear? Who will you stand with when it is all laid on the line in the midst of tribulation and in the midst of persecution, will you be willing to confess Christ when our whole culture stands up against this church and says that we're a bunch of bigots because we believe about what the Bible says about heaven and hell and about how a Christian ought to live their life, will you stand with Christ or will you deny him? Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 through 38, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And who, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so if you fear anyone more than Christ, he says you're not worthy of him. Who do you fear? The second question I want to ask you here is what do you love? What do you love? Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What did these Pharisees love? They loved the glory that came from spiritual pride. They loved to be applauded by others. They loved to be respected by others. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We also read that Jesus said this about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 5 through 7, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. In other words, the Pharisees, they love the praises of men. And here in verse 43, it's saying clearly they love that more than they love God. They would rather be receiving glory from man than the glory that they could receive from God. What is it that you love today? Do you also struggle with the love the Pharisees had to be praised by men? Do you love to be praised by your friends? Do you love for others to think of you as being super godly? Do you love the best seats at church? Do you love practicing the works of religion so that others will take notice of you? Do you love it when others praise you for doing Christian things? Do you love it when others hear you or your children recite scripture and they think of you as being godly? Do you love the glory that comes from man more than you love the glory that comes from God? Part of the reason 
that I don't think that these authorities were true believers is because of what Jesus said earlier to the Jews. Turn with me and look at this. John 5.44. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So in other words, in another place of the Gospel of John, he challenges that kind of belief. It says they believe, but is it true belief? Or is it a superficial belief? I'm suggesting to you here, it seems to me that it's a superficial belief and not a saving belief because they feared man and they loved the praises of man more than they feared God or loved the praises of God. And so the Jews were arguing that they did believe, but Jesus has called them out and saying they can't really believe when they're seeking each other's glory more than they're seeking the glory of God. And so today, if you are an unbeliever, I want to call you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. And today, if you are um, living in darkness, I want to call you out of darkness and into the light. And today, if your heart is asleep, I want to wake it up. And today, if you're stuck in a place and you, that you can't get out of, then I want to call you to go through the door, which is Jesus. Don't, don't stay in that room for your whole life of bondage, but rather come through the door of Christ. And it's impossible on your own. Jesus already said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, God resurrects dead hearts. He changes unbelief to belief. And so don't be caught in your unbelief. Allow Jesus to carry you into heaven. And don't be trapped in unbelief, but treasure Christ in your heart above all else. Don't reject Jesus anymore, but repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. A couple of questions just to ponder as we take off here today, here in just a moment. How does God use the unbelief of some to bring others to saving faith? Certainly something to think about. He used the unbelief of the Jews to nail Jesus to the cross to offer salvation to Gentiles. Number two, how does the fact that because unbelievers do not believe in Christ, then eventually they cannot believe in Christ help you appreciate judicial blindness? They would not, then they could not, then they're judged by God. How can we appreciate that more from what we've learned today? And then last, how does unbelief manifest itself in superficial religion in our culture? Just some things to think about as you discuss this in small group or amongst your family members this afternoon. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to tackle, again, a difficult text. And yet we see with great clarity here that this unbelief was rendered because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. I pray that on this day, we would not do the same. We would not reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see every sign that he did would be pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that we beg you to open the eyes and the hearts of, of, of our own lives and of our loved ones, that we acknowledge today that without your sovereign grace, there is no saving grace. And so today, God, we pray that we would just be in awe of you and that we would respect you and fear you and love you and that we would follow you with all that we are. And so I pray again for every Christian today that a message like this would cause us to be humble and to pursue your holiness. And for every unbeliever here today, God, that you would just remind them that it's impossible to come without the grace of God. May they be convicted today 
and may you grant repentance and faith so that we can come into the light of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.